0: As we look at Exodus chapter 1, from now until almost the last Sunday of the year, we're going to be looking at the story of the Exodus. This morning I'll be reading Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I do not recall this story personally. I was told it by my parents who recall it from when I was a young, young child. I was five and a half years old when my parents took us to Disney World. We did not live in Florida. We lived in Pittsburgh. So it's quite a drive, as you can imagine, involving many stops along the way when you have a seven-month pregnant mother and a five-year-old and a four-year-old not the funnest road trip and i recall or i don't recall i am told that at the first gas station i ran out of the car in utter excitement and looked around and said is this it no and then at the hotel the first night when we were about halfway down i just kept quiet stayed at the hotel had breakfast in the morning, and as we got back in the car, I said, I didn't like Disney World very much. (laughs) You know, we don't always understand the things that are promised to us, and we certainly don't always understand the timing of how God works out and keeps his promises. I had been promised Disney World, and I saw a gas station and a Motel 6 and thought, this promise really stinks. My parents didn't do what they said they were going to do. To God's people in the time of Exodus, a people in slavery and captivity, they had been promised something much, much better than they were receiving. And it seemed to them in this snapshot of their experience that God had not followed through. And you could understand them looking around and going, is this it? I don't like this promise very much. It's not what I thought it was going to be. But in the background of their story is the promise, the real promise of what God was doing. And Exodus begins, even when it recounts their slavery, Exodus begins with the indication that the promise is coming true. Three times in our passage that we we look at, three times it repeats the observation that the people multiplied. And that is a very, very important fact for us to look at. We might think back to to Genesis 1.28. After creating Adam and Eve, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Or we might think of Genesis 9.7 after the flood when God said to Noah, You be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So we might look at, at Exodus and see that as the people of Israel multiplied, they were just doing what God had told them to do twice already. But really what's in the background of this is the promise, not the command, but the promise that God gave to Abraham several times. One in particular in Genesis 17, God promised Abraham this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. There are three corresponding promises in those verses. God promised to turn Abraham into a great nation, a promise that He would be with His people in a covenant, unchanging, unbreakable love, and a promise that He would give them the land of Canaan, the promised land. The fulfillment of one of those promises should lead them to an expectation that the others will likewise be fulfilled. And for us as well, who are also heirs of great promises of God, unbelievable promises, who also perhaps sense that the promises of God haven't yet landed in our lives the way that we want them to or that we expected them to. Also needing to be reminded that God is still at work. We see here in the introduction to Exodus that God is always doing exactly what He promises to do. However, as we're going to see, the path of God's promise might not be what we expect So the first thing we see from the Israelites in Egypt is that the path of God's promise is not obvious. If we are reading Exodus with an eye for the fulfillment of God's promises, the first verses do not get us off to a great start. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Okay, first of all, they're in Egypt. They're supposed to inherit Canaan. Canaan is not Egypt. They had left the land of Canaan during a time of famine because God had placed Joseph in Egypt in order to provide food to protect and save the lives of the family that had received the promise of God. Egypt was a temporary necessity. But hundreds of years later, they're still in Egypt. They're not one step closer to inheriting the promised land. In fact, they're further away than they were during the time of Isaac. And yet we see in Genesis 15 that this is exactly how God intended for things to go. When God made the promise to Abram, He said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God, let Abraham know. That though it would seem that they had taken a path far away from His promises, He was still in control of it all. And things were happening exactly the way that God intended them to. On every step of our journey, we can trust that God is not surprised and that He is still in control. Even when the Israelites end up in Egypt, God knew they would be there and it was His plan to send them there. And likewise for you, every step of your journey you can know that God is not surprised. God is still in control of wherever you are. That's one problem with where the Israelites were, that the path of the promise had led them to Egypt. But there's another problem. The second one is this. Verses 2 through 5. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Seventy. Seventy people does not a great nation make. They came to Egypt numbering fewer than the number of the people on my own street right now. And I live on a court, okay? Not a lot of people. Wouldn't you think that God would have picked a bigger group to work with to make into a nation? Or to be honest, a better group. Let's run the background check on some of those names, shall we? Reuben committed adultery with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi tricked the people of Shechem and then slaughtered them. Judah abused and impregnated his daughter-in-law. Nine of these men were guilty of selling their brother into slavery and then lying about it to Jacob, saying he had been killed. This is neither the size of a group nor the quality of a group that we would expect God to use. And yet God tells them later, twice as they're approaching the promised land, in Deuteronomy 7, He says, It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping His oath that He swore to your fathers. Or Deuteronomy 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Okay, God is not delusional. He's not naive. He looks at Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. I memorized those when I was like eight years old. I I still remember them. He's not looking at them saying, what a good group of people. I'm going to turn them into a powerful nation. Or what a mighty large group of people this is that I can turn into something special. No, God says, you are the smallest and you are the most stubborn and that's why I'm going to do something with you. God's ways throughout Scripture are to intentionally go in a way that is not obvious. God chooses and uses the weak, the small, the humble, the sinful, the inappropriate, and the immature. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Gee, thanks, Paul. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When God blesses us, And when God uses us to bless other people, he's not showing how good we are. He's showing how powerful and kind he is. Reminds me of a kid I knew in high school who always, when it came time to pick teams for basketball, he always picked the worst kids. It's the only reason I ended up on a team. He picked the shortest. He picked the the least athletic. And and he would say, he's like, I'm athletic enough for all of you. Yeah, he was tall, he was fast, you just get in the ball and he's going to score. He says, I'm good enough for all of you, and this way you get to win. So I didn't complain about that. Now he was doing it arrogantly. God does it in a way that glorifies his goodness. He's not out there looking for the most righteous people to make holy. He's not looking for the strongest people to make stronger. He's saying, look how good Look how powerful I am. I take the weakest. I take the most sinful. I take the least capable. And I turn them into something special. That's the way that God works. The path of God's promise is not obvious. It led through Egypt. It started with the least appropriate people. And then this last little tidbit of bad news in verse 6. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation Joseph, the one whom God had raised into a position in power, was no longer in power. It would have made sense for God to use Joseph to continue to control Egypt and that through political and economic influence, he would fulfill his promise to Abraham's descendants to make them a great nation. But that's not how God does it. Joseph is gone and all his brothers with him and Israel ends up in a decidedly unblessed situation. And yet, despite being the least obvious group of people, in the least ideal circumstances, with no one in power on their side, verse 7 says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. My sisters and brothers, the path of greatness in the world's mind is strength, is power, is beauty, is glory, is influence, is popularity, is success. That is the obvious way to get what you want. But the path of God's promises does not follow the obvious way. It's twisted. It's confusing. It sometimes takes you away from what you thought you were going to get. It sometimes leads you into Egypt. It sometimes makes you look in the mirror and say, what am I doing in the family of God? It calls you to be humble and to receive the promises of God rather than become great enough to deserve it. It is a path that goes through the cross. Life because of death, it doesn't make sense. The path of God's promise is not obvious. But even as the promise begins to be fulfilled, something happens to shake things up. We look in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If he had known Joseph, he would have known the power of Joseph's God. If he had known Joseph, he would have known this power that had interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and saved the nation from famine and had been a blessing to many. He would have known that the Israelites came to Egypt in order to be a blessing to the nation. They had fulfilled the promise of Genesis 12.3 that God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Pharaoh would have known, a Pharaoh that knew Joseph would have known that these were welcomed guests who had been given land and protection. But he didn't know. And what we end up seeing is because he didn't know, the people of God became to him unacceptable. The path of God's promise is not acceptable. What he knew was that these people were a threat because they were not loyal to him. Verses 9 and 10, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Look, again, they're multiplying and becoming great, just as God had promised. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks south, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You see, the favor of the world has strings attached. Sure, you save our lives and we'll give you good stuff. That's what happened in Egypt. But we have to see that you're always on our side. Or like Nebuchadnezzar centuries later, in his golden statue, if you don't bow down and worship the way that we demand that you worship, then you are a threat to us. It doesn't matter what good things you've done, doesn't matter how much you've helped us in the past. You have to be on our side. You have to do things our way. But God's people are called to follow a different path, the path of the promise of God. And from the world's perspective, that is not. Acceptable. The early Christians faced this challenge. The reason in the New Testament that we see this phrase, Jesus is Lord, again and again. Anyone who confesses, Jesus is Lord. The reason that phrase comes up so much is because in their culture, in the Roman Empire, in order to avoid persecution for their faith, all they had to do was confess, Caesar is Lord. If you'll just say that. Just say that Caesar is Lord you're fine we'll accept you you're one of us you're safe you're on our side but the people of God could not say that because it wasn't true they had to say that Jesus is Lord so Christians then had to choose even as many must choose today Either the path of worldly acceptance, which is expressed in loyalty to the world's values and powers, or the path of persecution that accompanies the promises of God. And this is hard because deep down, we all want to be accepted. And by far the greatest expression and indication of acceptance that the world can offer us is the approval and the support of powerful people. If the king is on your side, you've got it made, right? And so it's very easy and very natural for us to put our hopes in being accepted by people that the world sees as important. Whether it's the popular kid in class, or the manager at your office, or someone online with a lot of followers, or someone with political and cultural power. We want to be accepted by them. And to do so, we have to play by their rules. And be on their side. But scripture warns us that such hopes do not last. They end up like counting on Pharaoh to always be on your side. The truth is Pharaoh is only on your side. As long as you're on Pharaoh's side. So scripture warns us. We did in our call to worship this morning in Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes. In a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. Any earthly hope will perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So first of all, Scripture warns us, don't put your hope in being accepted by the world, in getting the approval of worldly powers. But beyond that, beyond just saying, hey, don't trust the wrong people, the gospel message goes to the root of why we do that, why we crave that. Why do we want the acceptance of the world and of the powerful people in the world? Interestingly, it's not its not wrong or bad to want acceptance. It's natural. It's right. It's how you were made. You were made to want to be accepted by other people. That's okay. And so the gospel answer to our problem is not be your own person, be independent, stand up for yourself, and don't need other people. That's not what the gospel teaches us. The gospel answer is to, in fact, find acceptance in the right place. To rest in the acceptance that is already yours. Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, and he could have said when the world hates you, know that it has hated me, Before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now flip that around the other way in your mind. If the world loves you, it is because you are one of its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's beauty in that gospel declaration. Not just that the world hates you. That's not the beautiful part. The beautiful part is... The reason the world hates you is because Christ owns you. You have been accepted. You have a place. You belong. The gospel makes us able to put up with being rejected by the world because it promises that we have eternal acceptance in the promises of God. We can look at those who would reject us, whether it's big cultural figures and cultural movements, political leaders and political movements, people in our neighborhood, people in our family, people in our workplace, people in our school, the people who reject us when we don't side with them. In our hearts, we can know and not fear that rejection. We can know it doesn't matter because we have an eternal, unchanging acceptance in God. So the goal of the church and the goal of you as a member of the body of Christ. The goal is not that we would become accepted by the world. The goal is not to be popular. The goal is to be faithful. And for those who are faithful, those who do live in, in following and trusting God's promises, do not expect that those who stand outside the kingdom of God will be cool with that. We are warned in 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It wasn't that long ago that when I would preach on this, it would feel very hypothetical to us. But recent years have made it feel much closer to home, have they not? To follow God is to be out of step with a world that opposes Him. And that leads to our last point. The path of God's promise is, It's not obvious, it's not acceptable, but lastly, it is not easy. Being out of step with the world has consequences, and the path of God's promise is not easy. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And skipping to verse 13 and 14, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now remember, their, their journey didn't begin this way. They weren't captured and brought into Egypt and forced into slavery. They began as welcomed guests. They were given land. They were given cities to live in. A place in the community in Egypt. They had Joseph, one of their own, in charge of the nation, second only to Pharaoh himself. But when the people of Egypt began to see and suspect that their loyalty was not to Egypt, they became a threat. It became, choose to serve us, or we will force you to serve us. This is the eternal clash of the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man. There is no neutral ground There is no live and let live. And so following the path of God's promise is not easy. This can be confusing for us, though, because wouldn't it make more sense if following God's way always led us to ease and to comfort? Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point of following God if it doesn't make our lives better, right? What is the promise worth if it leads us to suffering? And that's worth thinking about for for a minute or two. Because either one of two things is true. Either God's promises fail, or we don't understand the promises rightly. Either God's promises fail. God has promised us all good things, and they didn't come true. Or, we didn't really understand the promise in the first place. So when we experience pain and trouble, it's natural to ask, did God's promises fail? But when we understand the promises, we always see that the answer is no. God's promises never fail. When a marriage crumbles, when a child suffers, when a loved one leaves When we can't pay the bills, when friends betray us, when our job disappears, we naturally wonder why God allows such things. We may ask, as Paul did in Romans 8, quoting Psalm 44, he said, God, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're just sheep to be slaughtered, right? Isn't that how this is? Is that how we should feel when when times are hard? And when it seems that the promises are not coming true, God, we trusted you. We did things your way and you've left us hanging out to dry. We're just sheep to be slaughtered. We don't matter. It's funny that's what Randy already alluded to this in our in speaking of our confession. The the, the mentality of worshipers in ancient Greece, Greece, ancient Rome and other other religions is that the The humans are just cannon fodder. We're just toys that the gods are playing with. We are just sheep to be slaughtered. It doesn't matter. But no, that's not how it is with the God who loves His people. The promises of God did not fail because He did not promise ease and comfort and freedom from pain your whole life. He did not promise you or anyone a perfect life a perfect family, a perfect job, the perfect kids, perfect health. No. The promises of God are not those things. The promise of God is not that we will never walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The promise is instead in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. The promise is not that you will have no trouble in the world. The promise of John 16 is in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And yes, in the end, the Lord leads his people to rest and to peace. Egypt, the desert, it's all part of the process of them reaching the promised land. Just as we also live in a time when some of God's promises have already been fulfilled and others are still waiting. Just because we haven't seen them yet doesn't mean that God has failed or God has forgotten or God has changed his mind. Even in Egypt, he's at work among his people fulfilling his promise. In verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. Not only that, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Remember what God had promised Abram? I will make you into a great nation. It's happening. Those who curse you, I will curse. It's happening before their very eyes. So how about that one other promise, God? That you would lead us to a land of rest? Or that promise that, that you would always be our covenant God and care for us? Well, if God is actively fulfilling the other promises, can we trust Him that He is still on the job? Can we trust Him that He's going to finish it, that He's going to carry through? That's the way of the gospel. The gospel is not just pie in the sky by and by. Trust God, hang on, hang in there, and someday we'll all be in heaven and it'll be okay. It's more than that. The gospel does not just give us hope that our troubles will one day end. the, The gospel also shows us that God's deliverance has begun. It's already begun. And therefore, we can be confident that he will finish it. Listen to how the author of Hebrews put this in Hebrews 2. At present, we do not yet see everything in subject to God. But what we do see is this. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Child of God, you don't yet see and experience everything being as it will, everything being as God promised it would be. But you see Jesus. You see that in him, God has already won victory over death and hell and sin and evil. You sang about it this morning. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Christ is already risen. We see that. That's the beginning of the fulfillment. And just as surely as the fulfillment has begun, it will be carried on to completion. You see that He who promised to defeat the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3 has indeed already now crushed the serpent's head at great cost to Himself. You see that His kingdom... His church is growing and is expanding, reaching every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in the world. You see a risen Savior. And on the basis of that, everything else that God has promised, you can be certain it will happen. As we already heard this morning, 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God. For His glory. Because Jesus has risen. Because He lives in victory. Because we see that God has defeated sin and death and evil at the cross. We can utter Amen to every one of God's promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen. I number the hairs on your head. Nothing happens in your life beyond His control. Amen. Because Christ has risen. I know that it is true. And so we wait. And so we work. And so we trust. And so we rejoice, clinging to the enduring promises of God, which give us certainty and give us strength until faith becomes sight. We're going to sing it in a few minutes. The battle is not done. The battle is not yet done. God's promises still stand. Though all around us seem to contradict that. Though our own personal experiences seem to challenge that view that God's promises are being fulfilled. The battle is not done. And even in Egypt, His people are multiplying and growing. And His promises are being fulfilled before their very eyes. I will never forget, I'm sure I've shared this story with many of you before, if not from up front, but I'll never forget watching a movie with my dad before he passed. Um, and, and it's relevant what movie it was. it was. It was the first Lord of the Rings movie. First of three. My dad didn't know it was a trilogy. Okay, now my mom and I knew. I was watching it with both my parents. My mom had read that story to me when I was when she was still pregnant with me. Like I'd been hearing that from birth and before. I knew the story. My mom knew the story. I'd already seen the movie, and we wanted my dad to see it. And so we sat down, we sit through that marathon of a movie, which if you've seen it, you know, because it's the first of three movies, it ends with nothing resolved. Everything is up in the air. Everything is confusing. Nothing is satisfying. And my dad, still not knowing there's two more movies yet to be released, says, That's a horrible way to end a story. And my mom just said, Bob, the story isn't over yet. Well, when can we see the end? Well, not for another year or two. (laughs) Friends, for many of us, looking at the world and looking at the church and looking at our own lives, And the lives of people that we love, we want to say, that is not a good story. God, this isn't how you love people. God, this isn't how you are in control. This isn't how you fulfill your promises. Brothers and sisters, we need to remind one another the story isn't over yet. There is more to it. Christ is risen, as we sang earlier, showing us the promises of God are all on track. The happy ending is guaranteed. The path there might be confusing. It might be difficult. It might be filled with challenges that we do not expect or desire. But our Savior is mighty. And this is His world. And nothing, nothing, can stand between God's good plan and the people that He intends to deliver. That was His word to His people in Egypt. That is His word to His people in every generation. That is His word to me and you today. The story isn't over yet. The path of His promises can be confusing and hard. But if you are on that path, His promises will not fail. Let us in our hearts and with our words Rejoice in those promises today. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, this is Your world. And Your plan cannot and will not fail. But You will succeed in all that You have planned for Your people. I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, especially for those that are struggling. Those who in their homes, or in their failing bodies, or in their... Troubled minds are wondering if your promises are worth anything. Would you encourage us, Lord? Show us how you are still at work. Point us to Christ. We do see Him who was made a little lower than the angels, now raised in glory and honor and victory over death. Your promises are still standing, and we can trust them. By your Spirit, strengthen us. Strengthen us to obey, to be steadfast until the faith is made sight. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, in whom all your promises are yes. Amen.